Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Life is full of horrible things. I dare you to deny it. Things like death, sickness, and alcoholism. And did I mention death, which lies in wait for us all? But if you talk about these things at dinner parties or at work or to someone you have just met in line at the grocery store, you risk being branded a negative person. In some circles, such as the state of California, negativity is like leprosy. It can really mess up your social life. This does not seem to trouble my guest today, who has spent much of his adult life turning horrible true stories into festive comedy. Like many people, I first heard David Sedaris's unmistakable voice on public radio in the late 90s. My sister and I took a couple of his audiobooks on a road trip across America in her red Saturn with a bumper sticker on the back that read, Humanity is Trying. Having Sedaris along as company somehow made the endless miles of Stuckey's and strip malls and the weeping people at Elvis's graveside in Graceland a little less alien and terrifying. In his latest book, Calypso, David is doing his thing better than ever. It's about what's on his mind these days, from decluttering the English countryside to feeding a surgically removed lump of fat to a snapping turtle to a sister's suicide. Welcome to Think Again, David. Thank you. You're wearing your Fitbit, I see. Yes, I am wearing my Fitbit. And so we, we walked, I'm here with my publicist and we're doing a day of publicity. Right. And we got to our first appointment early. So we walked a mile and a half and then we just walked, we got out of the car a mile and a half ago and walked. You are very focused on how many steps you are walking. <laughs> yeah, I really am. It fits perfectly <laughs> into my mental illness. So when I'm at home now, I walk between 15 and 22 miles a day. That takes a long time. So 15 and 22 miles every day. Yeah, that, yeah, that takes a long time. A lot of And every walking. morning I get up and it's like time to start over. But I never learned to drive a car. So I walk to get places and right. I live in the country. Right. So if I go to the closest supermarket and back, that's seven miles. But I have another one I can go to and back. And that's like, I don't know, 15 miles there and back. So I can just get my stuff done. And, and you don't actually have in. to, you don't actually have to do the counting. It counts for you, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's kind of a big relief because yeah. I was listening back to Naked recently, like for the first time in many years. And it was a very different story when you were a kid. You were literally counting every step. Right. You, and I would have, you know, if somebody had introduced the topic of walking, you know, 50,000 steps, I, I probably would have done, done the counting myself. Yeah. And then got really angry if someone made me lose count. Someone came up and said, 17, 22, 75. My 10-year-old son is has a little bit of OCD going on, and I played him your story, uh, one of one of the stories from Naked, and uh, he found it very funny and also like a relief because it's much more. His thing was manifesting as needing to touch poles and so forth, but not not to the extent that you like you literally could not walk two steps anywhere, yeah. without licking light poles and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I had it pretty bad, but I never was taken to a doctor. Yeah, or anything. They didn't know what it was, I guess, back then. At we just all. didn't talk about it, right? But I didn't have. I mean, I know people whose children have horrible. They're like that, but then they have anxiety on top of it, which can be pretty awful. You, I'm not an anxious person. You didn't have that anxiety back then. No, I mean the rocking was not a response to anxiety. 
We're getting very psychoanalytical. I mean, I rocked myself here. to sleep <laughs> yeah. uh, every night until I was 18 and went to college. And then I thought, God damn it. Can you know? Can you have a roommate? You can't rock yourself to sleep. But there would be... Bef- it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be like you'd rock yourself, and then after five minutes you're asleep. You'd rock for hours and listen to the radio and fantasize about stuff. But I don't. I remember that as <laughs> like me time. You know, like I'd go to bed right. early because I'd think, oh, I can rock for. My sister Amy's the same. Like go to bed now and get in two and a half hours of rocking before. It was like meditation. Falling asleep. Kind of. Well, it always involved fantasy. Like it always involved. Not fantasy like, oh, if I could fly. It was more fantasy about the future and about how everything was going to work out so perfectly for you. <laughs> when you were a kid, what did you think you were going to do in the future? Uh, like what, you know, what was your, like, I don't know, sort of the longest running thing before it was a writer? I wanted people to say, I wanted to hear people say, was that David? That was David Sedaris. That you was, want to be famous. That's David Sedaris. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> care what it was for, but I just really, that's what I wanted. Were all of your siblings like that? I mean, Amy's like that. No, which is always interesting to me. I'm always so interested when somebody doesn't care for that. Right. Like my brother lives in Raleigh, and then Amy and I were in Chicago, and then Amy was at Second City, and Amy thought, you know what, Paul should be here. And then Paul came up to Chicago and after a week, he went back home because he 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 never dreamt bigger than Raleigh, North Carolina. It wasn't right. what he'd been fantasizing about. Like he never wanted to. Got it. He doesn't want attention. I mean, there's also different ways of getting attention, and your your writing is so and always has been so personal. Was there a period of adjusting, I guess, to then going out in public and talking to people who knew all of these things that you were sharing, or were you just like, I'm an open book? I guess I never I guess I never felt like I was giving away anything that was that important. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. giving away a piece of my soul or something like that. Because I would just think, okay, well, what did I just write about? I just wrote about buying a plane ticket. Like, I don't care if people know that I bought a plane ticket. Right. And then after a while, I realized that the more embarrassing the thing, the more people can relate to it because they did the same thing. Right. They've had the same experience. And that said, I, you know, I draw the line at certain... Like, I wrote an essay uh, about... I got. I was on tour and I got this gastrointestinal virus. Right. And I almost shit in my pants. Right. Like every day I couldn't believe that I didn't because I'm on a plane (laughs) and I'm in front of people. Yeah. And, you know, it's a severe gastrointestine. If I had shit in my pants, I don't know that I would have written about it. But a lot of a lot of other people might have. And then that as you kind of as you wrote in the essay, that would it's hard to live that down. Yeah. I mean that's (laughs) That's kind of who you are after that. Yeah. (laughs) It really I mean, if I did shit in my pants, uh, I mean, I might just leave it at that. Right. I shit in my pants, but I wouldn't get into necessarily what it smelled like or, you know, running (laughs) down your legs. But 
I met this woman and she shit in her pants and she was 14. <laughs> oh my God. And she was wearing, and she thought she looked good. And she was wearing new white jeans oh. and super white sneakers and white socks. And she shit in her pants. At school? No, on the subway. Oh God. And then she said she had shit juice running down oh. her legs. And so <laughs> she tucked her pant leg into her shoes to keep it from going onto the ground, uh, the floor of the subway. Oh, my God. And then you think, okay, that's life-changing experience. You're 14 years old where yeah. basically you're, the entire, you're, your entire brain is wired to be constantly yeah. aware of what everyone thinks of you. <laughs> Can you imagine? And I, I met a young woman and she was in school because I started asking people if you were shitting your pants. And I right. met this young woman and she was in uh, French class. Right. And the girl next to her in high school said, can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher said, no, we're not done yet. Can I go to the bathroom? No, we're not done yet. And she shit in her pants. And it was just like kind of liquid everywhere. And the girl left school. And I think she was gone for like three weeks. And then she came back. But I'm surprised she even came back. And that teacher should be in huge trouble. I mean, that that's a... Yeah, that I, that's every teacher's nightmare, I would imagine. <laughs> because they're always trying to make that difficult call about whether this kid is just, you know, trying to get out of class or not, but they should just let everyone go whenever they want, right? But in high school. Yeah, yeah. God, that's gotta be. It's uh, gotta be terrible. Although, I mean, if it weren't so absolutely mortifying, there would also be some kind of vindication in there as well, right? Because it's like, see, I really did have to go. Yeah, <laughs> at least you have that. So, uh, if I had a teenage child and she shit in her pants in high school because of that, I would have said, okay, I guess we have to move. Right. And it would have moved across country, changed everybody's name. <laughs> Started over Started again. a new life. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of new lives, how long have you been living in England? Well, it wasn't like we packed up and moved in a single day. We kind of went back and forth. But I got a place there in the year 2002. Okay. And then for a long time, I could only spend three months a year there. The and, visa stuff. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I got... Basically, it's my green card. Okay, so you're a citizen of the, or you're. I'm a citizen of the U.S., but I could become a British citizen, get my passport, okay. if I felt like it. But I just don't see the need. Okay. Do you want to be knighted ultimately? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I would like to be knighted, but I was invited to Buckingham Palace. Okay. Um, because of all the trash I've picked up on the side of the road. Seriously? Yeah, it had nothing to do with my writing. I've picked up tons and tons and tons and tons of trash. How did Buckingham Palace find out about this? Well, the queen has a lieutenant <laughs> in every county. Okay. And then her, the lieutenant in West Sussex would see me on the side of the road picking up trash. And then she saw me in front of her house picking up trash. And, and then she nominated me. The queen has a party every year for do-gooders. Okay. And there are like, I don't know, 8,000 of them or something. And so I was invited on that day. And so I would like to be knighted for that, just for that, because I think it would send a good message to people that that's valued, you know? No, that, that would be, all, yeah, that would be so, that would be great. That's not like sort of Mick Jagger being knighted. I mean, the Rolling Stones are great and everything, but, you know. Well, plus, <laughs> like Andrew Lloyd Webber or something like that, like he's not hurting for money, you know? I mean, for, right. same or with fame, Mick Jagger. Or fame, right. yeah, yeah. But anybody who picks up as much trash as I should be knighted. 
as much trash as I got. <laughs> so it doesn't need have to be me. Were you always picking up trash everywhere that you lived, or is this a newish? Uh, before I moved to England, I would thing. pick up like one or two things a day, and okay. I would say, "Okay, that cups today, that newspaper today." But now it's a thing to do while you're doing the eighty million steps yeah, but, on the. But Fitbit. also, like when we moved to England, we bought our house in the country. I didn't notice it so much on the when we went to look at the house. But then we, once we it was our house, I was like, "What is going on here?" People just throw everything out their car window. I mean everything. So, what, so when I say I pick it's up worse trash than America, day, you think? Oh yeah! Oh my situation. god! Oh my god! But in America, weird. In America, like a poor neighborhood will have a trash on the ground, but the rich neighborhood doesn't. Right. In England, it's every neighborhood. When I look at, especially the English countryside, there seems to be a, I don't know, like an almost genius grade interest in flowers and picturesqueness. Mm-hmm. You know. So, yeah, and there's rubbish right there everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. People hide it a lot, you know, like schoolboys and stuff will stick it in hedges. Are you at this point the guy who will say something to somebody if you see them doing that? I wish that? I could. And I thought the way to do it is to, because I always have a notebook on me, is to pull out the notebook and say, oh, I'm so glad I saw you do that. Look, <laughs> I'm writing an article about litter and I'm just wondering, I'm not judging you, I'm just wondering why you did that. Like there's a trash can <laughs> right there you've set it on the ground. And I think there'd be a way to do that and just act, you know, just be like, I'm a writer, so I'm just, but see, I'm always dressed in rags and I have a litter picker in my hand. So they're going to think, what kind of a writer are you? Are these literal rags or are these these weird clothes that you're buying in Japan that you talked about? (laughs) The weird clothes that I buy in Japan that I, like I bought a pair of pants the other day from a Japanese shop in San Francisco. And I thought that was perfect. This is going to be perfect for picking up rubbish. And I literally, I could take one leg and pull it up to my chest. Yeah. So the leg is so wide. And you knew this when you were buying them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you thought you'd get them taken thought, in or something. No, no, no. I mean, the legs are just so <laughs> wide that the legs are as wide as the waist. That's just the style of the pants? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I thought, oh, I'll wear them t- for picking up rubbish in. But I have a lot of, it's almost like there's a Broadway show called Hobo. <laughs> and, and, that's, and I'm wearing costumes from that. Hugh isn't too into it. This was your, you're married now, your husband, yes? Or? No, no, we're just together. Okay, you know, just together. For 26 years. Right, just, like, just only together for 26 years. Well, he has a hard time with the walking thing because I'm gone for so long. Sometimes he'll be like, he wants us to do more together. And I say, great, come for a walk with me. Well, he doesn't want to do that. Or if say, I'll, guard, I'll help you garden. He doesn't want that. Okay. So he What does he, he want to do? He wants he to read a very big book. He likes reading big books. With dust on it. Yeah, with dust on it. We're talking Dostoevsky kind of oh, stuff. Oh, he'd, he'd be completely happy. That kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But you, I was thinking about, you know, that moment in your book where you said that, because the way you write, you obviously read some good writing over the course of your life. Maybe you're not sitting there plowing through Dostoevsky, but who are your people? Who excited you as a writer? Who'd you pick up language from? Or is it just... Well, I know. The first book I ever read for pleasure was Slaughterhouse-Five. Okay. Right? Vonnegut. Okay. And I didn't, I didn't really start reading like that until I was like 20 years old. And I started writing 
the same week because you can't write in a vacuum. You have to read. Right. So like who are your top, you know, I don't know, two, three, four writers of all time that you just are like your brain lights up? Flannery O'Connor is somebody who (laughs) I, and it's interesting what will happen to Flannery O'Connor because of her language. She can't be in schools now. Do you know what oh, I mean? okay, right. And then a lot of the N word. Yeah. yeah. So you but you can't really survive if you're not in, taught in school. And so I hate the thought of her disappearing. Yeah, me and too. And I hate the thought of her too being held to a standard of today, which I don't think it's fair to do. I don't think it's fair to hold her to a 2018 standard like of language it's messed up it's messed up how politics makes us ahistorical that way you know i always loved her and i would read her stuff over and over and over again and then i would think well i want to understand her better so there are any number of academic books about her about her and catholicism and her symbolism stuff and i tried reading them and i thought this isn't helping me any like this is (laughs) what i was liked was she's funny and she's just a really good writer, and she's really good at describing people, and she's one of the few people who can write dialect. But one thing you get from her is that if you have a pretension, you're going to pay for it, right? <laughs> you're always going to pay for it in the end. And so she's somebody who just... And then Tobias Wolf is somebody who really spoke to me as a short story writer. I think he's the best living American Short story writer. Okay, um, I have not. I, I'm woefully if ignorant I had, of Tobias Wolf. I if I had know. a church, every week I would read a Tobias Wolf story, and then I would say, "Go." I wouldn't talk about it at the end. I would right. just say, "Go." Not that he's a. It's that deep. An overtly like, Christian mm-hmm. writer, but some of my favorite stories of his almost are like parables. It's interesting that these two writers you've mentioned. I mean, Flannery O'Connor is very funny too, but like both of them are. There are moments of intense poignancy and seriousness in your stuff, but I wouldn't think of most of your writing as a parable. You're in a different vein. Yeah. You know, when you're young, you try to be these people, and then you get older and you think, okay, well, they're they're them, and I'm me. And after a while, you get comfortable with yourself, with being who you are. Lori Moore is somebody who I... You know, you try to re- read a story and it's joke, 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 and you're, you're devastated at the end. Right. And you think, how did she do that? <laughs> how did she do it? Like, why can't I? And again, it was one of those things that I'm just so glad she exists. I don't need to be her. Sure. I'm just glad somebody is her. You can try to be other people, and everybody does that for some formative period, but you better end up being yourself or you're in trouble. (laughs) Well, Remy Carver is somebody who, at the very beginning, because his sentences are really simple, Uh uh, then you think, okay, I can do this. And then you realize, "Eh, harder than it looks. But he made writing seem possible to me. And I remember when I first discovered his book, what a huge moment that was for me. I mean... I would go to the library in Raleigh and look at the new bookshelf. Mm. I mean, I'd go to the library sometimes twice a day. Right. But just that feeling of finding like the new Joy Williams book <laughs> at the library and you got it. And just, I, I never feel, when people come up at a book signing and say, oh, I don't have any of your books, I get them from the library. I'm delighted. That doesn't mm-hmm. bother me any. You know, when somebody says, I got your book remaindered, I say, you know, just a note for yourself in the future, don't ever tell a writer that you got their book <laughs> remaindered. Nobody wants to hear that. 
And for the listeners, remaindered means it got like resold. Yeah, and then it's at Barnes and Noble for right. two ninety nine. Right, right. Yeah. No, that's not yeah. what a writer wants to hear. No, because pretty much everyone's <laughs> books get remaindered. Right, right. You know? Eventually, right. You know, a number of the blurbs and critiques, all of which that I've seen have been positive uh, of your of Calypso, have talked about it being kind of in a different vein, a darker vein. Do you think at all, do you think about how your writing is changing or how you're, you know, evolving as a writer or is it just something that you kind of do, you just write and it's evolving because you're older and the things in your life are different? I think it's probably the f- the latter. I mean, I think when you're younger, you just want to hear people laughing. You know, that's all you want to hear is people laughing. And then I realized too, people want to laugh. Right. And they came, they came out, and they want to laugh. That's what they want to do. But I, for me personally, like my sister Amy was at Second City for a number of years, and I would go see her shows all the time, and I would laugh, 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 laugh. But afterwards, I couldn't remember a single thing I'd laughed at, <laughs> you know? And so I tend to remember something if it's weighed down a little with sorrow. Yeah. But I don't want to add that to an essay about walking, do you know what I mean? Right, My fit sure, bit Because sure, then sure. it's like, there's nothing to be sorry about. But then sometimes, you know, like, you know, my sister committed suicide. Like, this is that's a t- sad, Tiffany. Yeah. yeah. That's, you know, I mean, it has its funny moments. The essay about that. I'll get into this because you wrote about it. And for what it's worth, I'll also say that I lost a sister three years ago. Probably not to suicide, but I'm not sure. And a sister who also had difficulty kind of like getting along in society. But um, there's not much dwelling. You're, you're, you're in the details. You talk about exactly who she was, what she was like. You talk in a very crisp way about this moment when she came backstage to one of your Mm -hmm. shows. Yeah, we hadn't spoken to each other in a number of years, and then I was doing a show in Boston, and uh, I'm getting ready to go out at the end of the show and sign books, and I hear, David, David, it's me, it's Tiffany, I have something for you. And she was just there. In that tone, kind of aggressive. Yeah, that was just how she talked. Yeah, yeah. And I said to the, the security guy there, and I said, would you please close the door? And he shut the door in my sister's face, and I never saw her or spoke to her again. And I felt like I needed to write about that moment because I could see how friends of hers would be like, oh, look at him, he wants sympathy, and he's writing about his sister's suicide, and he wasn't even there for her. So I felt like I needed to, I felt like I needed to include that, not just for those people, but just you can have that moment and you can still grieve you know, you don't have to have like a perfect record yeah, 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 yeah. to no. grieve somebody. But you don't, and this is, I think, something in the nature of what you're trying to do as a writer. You don't really unpack it much. You don't, you don't go too deep into like your feelings about that moment in, in no. the thing. You're just kind of like, this happened. But, but, you but know? The, the reason I did it, I mean, my sister was so, so difficult to be around. And if she, let's say if she phoned, Right, you would pick up the phone and she would talk at you for several hours, right, right, never right. ask you a question, talk at you, and then she would tell you things that were so distressing that for the next three weeks, 
you would go to bed thinking about it and you would wake up thinking about it. There would be nothing else that you could. <laughs> That's the kind of negativity I was talking about in the opening to this show, right? The, the kind that people are really afraid of because it actually does suck you yeah. down into yeah. quicksand, you know? And, and it's either stuff about themselves that you don't want to believe that your sister is living like that. Right. Or, you know, she went to a therapist for a while who told her if you don't remember being sexually assaulted, that means you were sexually assaulted. And I had just started a tour. No, and I, I get thought, it. I when get I saw it. her there, I thought, can I afford three weeks? Can I afford three weeks of being obsessed with whatever's going to come out of her mouth? And I thought, no, I can't do that right now because I'm on tour. I get it. It's, no, you, you but, understand. But, but I guess in the back of you, my head, I thought, after I'm on tour, I'll call her and we'll, and I'll do it then. And then it just never happened. But you understand in that moment that like, I mean, additionally, like whatever it is that she quote, needs from you, if there is something like you, you can't actually satisfy that need. It's a, it's no. a bottomless right. need. And you know, and I know Tiffany had friends that acted like, that want to pretend that if I'd given her money, it wouldn't have made any difference. Like, but I would go to visit her and I would like fill up her refrigerator and freezer. I'd go to the grocery store and buy stuff. And then it'd be like, do you want this fucking steak? My fucking brother brought me this. I don't want this shit. Mm -hmm. Do you want this? Look, here's a turkey. My brother gets, fuck him. You yeah. take the turkey. Yeah, yeah. But when she's with you, then it's like, oh my God, that's so nice of you and stuff. So she can't, she needs help, but she won't take help because she doesn't want to need help. And she's not going to take her medication because she doesn't want to be sick. But she is sick, but she denies being sick. And you know, she would have like really intense friendships with people that would often end violently, right? Right, with restraining orders. And she was the kind of person too who, you know, if she were to have come to live with me in Sussex, right, within a day, she would have found somebody as sick as she was. And then there would be this kind of relationship going on that would eventually explode. your own. Yeah. But yeah. she could find that person. Um, I mean, it's crazy how quickly she could locate that person. And my sisters and I, you know, Tiffany would, you know, she'd come home for Christmas and then you'd be, you know, so there'd be times you'd be having a good time with her, but then it has to end badly. It has right. to end. Right. It's a big, big fight. It has to be slamming out of the door. It has to be taking a cab to the airport this huge drama all the time. So she would then not be talking to you. Right. But there was only somebody she was talking to. There right. was only somebody in the family that she was talking to. So when I wasn't talking to her, that wasn't normal. I mean, that wasn't out of question. Abnormal, I mean, right. But it just took a lot out of you because nothing's changing because she won't take her medicine. So nothing's going to change. I think the hard pill to swallow there like that direct immediate lesson that there is somebody that you'd like to help that you simply cannot. Well, it's interesting because my boyfriend Hugh would say, well, maybe if she did this or after Tiffany died, he would say, if only we had right, right, right. done. And I would say, Hugh, <laughs> she was mentally ill. Like you, there's nothing, you know, if, to send Tiffany a plane ticket and say, come to England. Right. She wouldn't get on the plane. Right. She would sell the ticket. It's just magical thinking. To, she would have to be a completely different person for the outcome to be different. And it's, it's so sad.
you have a like you've you've had a little notebook in your lap as we've been talking now it's in your pocket it makes people more nervous to see uh a notebook than a camera you wrote my name down so that makes me i feel like you've stolen a piece of my soul (laughs) (laughs) i'll ask you please to rip that out No, well, no, because it, well, it, I, it, I do it, it I, during interviews because sometimes yeah. it's like, oh, and that'll help me get back to the question. Right, right, sure. Or, um, but some of these know, things must end up in your stories as well. Well, like the person who interviewed me earlier, someone who interviewed me yesterday, my notes are speech therapy, podcast, abortion. <laughs> now, this morning, it made sense to me. But now, you know, just a short while later, I have a hard time. I'm thinking about the abortion thing. Was that you know what an it was? interview for a podcast? It was one of the ones where the last question was asked by the last oh, podcast guest who writes down a question for me to answer. And that question was, would you rather be a genius in a musical instrument or fluent in another language? Oh, okay. And I said language because if you were a genius at the instrument, that doesn't mean that you are driven to... Right, you may never do anything with that <laughs> right, talent. Right, yeah. whereas with a language, I'd be so happy to be fluent in Japanese and never have to think about it again. So my question for the next person was, do you think you'll have an abortion this summer? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you knew in advance who the next person no, no, was? No, I have no idea. Oh, you don't? Okay. Yeah. So it could be a male. Yeah, it could be. Okay. (laughs) In which case, his answer is really easy. (laughs) This is a good place to segue into the second part of the show, where we're going to see some surprise video clips. Okay. All right. I don't know what they are. They've been chosen by the video team. There's two of them. They're short, and we'll watch each and then talk about them. Great. Okay. This is... Martin Amos, the writer, and a clip is called Why Great Writing Demands Good Etiquette. You know, decorum as a concept means uh, not offending good taste and all that. And decorum in writing is a completely different concept. And all it means is that the content should suit the style should suit the content. There's nothing to do with good taste. Uh, no writer worth anything is bothered by good taste. Which, what is good taste? It's a shallow consensus of a certain kind of right-thinking individual or group of individuals. Um, it's measuring what you're saying to how you're saying it. And tremendously foundational uh, uh, principle for writing. And, and the experimental writer will, of course, instinctively transgress against these rules. Um, but you've got to realize that, that all your guide ropes are, are being jettisoned. Um, and the goodwill of the reader is not infinite. Um, it's, it's usually very high as you open a novel. Um, but if you mess around with the reader at, at your whim, that goodwill is very quickly used up. Um, you know, stream of consciousness, even Joyce has a very low success rate with it. You have to be a genius to write stream of consciousness 
um, and even the supreme genius, Joyce, um, wrote his long, the novel he spent 15 years on, Finnegan's Wake, is, is flat out unreadable. Uh, and even Ulysses, um, only about 25% of Ulysses works. And I, I've come more and more to the conclusion that if it's social realism you're writing, then it obeys, it so, means the novel is a sociable form, it's a social form. And the writer is like a host and the reader is like a guest. And if you, when you visit a Nabokov novel, um, it's as if he has given you his, the best chair nearest the fire and given you his best wine and giving you his full attention um, in the most you know, tactful and sensitive way. If you went round to Joyce's house, you'd find the address didn't exist. Then you would find some sort of outbuilding where Joyce lives, and then he wouldn't be in, it, apparently. And then you'd shout for him, and eventually a figure would appear, and he would um, talk to you in a language you'd never heard of before. And instead of giving you a delicious dinner, as Nabokov does, uh, Joyce would give you two slabs of peat around a conger eel. Um, it would be, and some repulsive drink he'd made himself. Um, it's, it's to leave social realism, and I've done it, and most writers do it a couple of times in their career, um, is, to, is, is a great statement of, um, of arrogance and uh, introversion and the huge risks involved in leaving the path of social realism. And writers will be tempted to do it every now and then, and, and sometimes you can bring it off. But, um, but you say goodbye to all those, all the etiquette of, of social intercourse, um, which governs the novel as it governs all our dealings. He's such a smart guy. You were ha-ing and ah ing several times throughout Well, that. I think like what he says about good taste, I think is really true. That good taste is not a concern of writing. A lot of times I get letters from people who were at a reading and they'll chide me for, for bad taste or for using <laughs> certain language. And they say, I thought you were better than that. And I always write them back and I said, what did I ever do to give you that impression? <laughs> Obviously, they don't know, they haven't read any of your writing if well, they think you're not going to talk about things that might make well, them uncomfortable. Well, plus what they're talking about, like, I don't see where that's an issue at all. You right. know, we're talking about an arrangement of words on a piece of paper that I'm here to read out loud. So when, when they get into right. that, like a taste issue, then I can't even begin to take what they're saying seriously. Without because veering us off into like politics too much, I, I once heard about this study that was, that was aligning, it was like a psychological study aligning liberalism and conservatism with your sort of disgust filter. So like mm -hmm. people who had a stronger innate disgust button in their temperament tended to veer conservative. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because I honestly don't know which is worse now. I don't know. I feel like you have 
a liberal audience and a conservative audience oh, right, right, sure. meeting in the middle to put their hands around my neck and strangle me. Oh, right? sure. There's so many things you can't talk about or that you're chided for or taken to task for. Right. What do they, like, what do know, they come at? What, are the, what does the left come after you for? Well, like I bought this house on the coast of North Carolina, right? And the houses there are all made out of wood and they're all on stilts and they all have beachy names, right? Okay. Like uh, Crabadabadoo. Okay. Or uh, Dune Our Thing or Clamalot, right? So our house had a dumb name. So I changed it to the C-section. Right. right. So now, you know, I'm saying I want to get a boat and I want to call it Roe v. Wave and that we're going to perform abortions at sea okay. on the boat. And this way you can make a day of it. Right. And you can go deep sea fishing and you can go scuba diving and you can have so much fun at the end of the day. Someone's going to say, what'd you do yesterday? And you're like, oh, my God, we had so much fun. We did this and this and this. And then, oh, yeah, I had an abortion. It would be like number four on your list because your day would have been so full of activities. <laughs> right. So then... From the right, you get every life is sacred. And from the left, you get that's a really difficult decision for a woman, woman and you're making fun of, you're, you're belittling it. Enough, yeah. And you're like, you know, so you're getting it, you're, you get it from both sides. I mean, and, I was, I think there's something, I mean, this is not an original thought that I'm having, but I think there's something in comedy that skirts above the kind of like deep emotional consideration of things. There's a flippancy, a kind of, I don't know, inherent cruelty or violence to it. Really what that comes down to is somebody questioning your taste. Right. And I don't, I'm not sure that I trust my taste in clothing. Okay. Like, <laughs> As your earlier comments demonstrate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just bought a pair of black sequin culottes. Okay. You're buying a lot of culottes yeah. lately, apparently. And, yeah. and a mod vest. Okay. okay. And both of them cost like so much money. I'd be embarrassed to tell people how much I paid for them. So I'm not sure, but I think I look great when I wear them. Right. You know, but I'm not sure I trust that. But to tell you the truth, I don't really question my comic taste. Like you might say something that people are like uncomfortable with, but I think that's when you're doing your job. And nobody can do anything to you, you know, at this point in America. Nobody can shut you down and you're doing, people like your books and they come to your tours and whatever. Oh, it's incredibly easy to be shut down. You know, I mean, when you look at Daniel Handler, who, and then you say, well, what did he do? And he said to, I mean, my understanding is he said to somebody, oh, are you a virgin? My understanding is that's what he did. And then the woman felt belittled by it and... He's, then, he's insufficiently reverent. And then he, he <laughs> lost a, a speaking engagement wow. and he lost this and this. and That's Lemony Snicket for listeners who is so brilliant, but such it, a good writer. He, it yeah. wasn't anything that was against the law that, right. he, that he did. I mean, you know, maybe he made a joke and it didn't land. I mean, all the time things come out of my head, out of my mouth, and I'm like, oh, fuck, did I say that? Right. Did well, I, I mean, the first, I think, that? 20 minutes of our podcast today was about shitting your pants, pretty much. Yeah. Not yours specifically, but ones, you know. But, but I think it's very easy <laughs> to be sh shut down now, I think. You know, and then other, you know, places would say, well, we don't want to be associated with him, so we're going to cancel the speaking engagement. I guess. I mean, but, but then again, 
There's 80 billion podcasts where whose audiences don't care. There's your right. books. Your you know people. There's an audience for the books. I, I did a I did a talk somewhere at a college in Washington State. It was probably about eight years ago now, and. Uh, it was parent weekend, but I wasn't paying attention. I mean, I go on tour and I go into 40 cities and you tell me tomorrow I'm going to Bellingham and I'll be in Bellingham tomorrow, right? right? And I'll be, you tell me to, someone's going to take me to the theater at six o'clock. I'll be there at six o'clock, but the fine print. Right. Anyway, so apparently it was parents weekend, right? So I get there and I do a show. And the woman who, who brought me there wrote me the next day and said, you should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, you know, you were up there <laughs> spreading that filth on stage and the audience was horrified. Okay, I'm sorry, I was there. And if, <laughs> and if I read something and it wasn't working, I would take note of that. And yeah. I would be like, okay, instead of reading this thing next, I'm gonna read this. You know, I gotta get these people back somehow. But the laughter was just what it was. Every other time I read the story, I signed books for four hours. So apparently not everyone was horrified. Right. Yeah. If people are that horrified, they're not going to stand in line for four hours. <laughs> and none of them mention how horrified they were. Right. And it was another one of those stories where it's got language in it, but you need to get beyond the language. Right. I mean, that's I sort of the whole point of it. I was listening to Naked with my son, you know, in the car, and uh, and I did find myself doing that parent thing at one point, because there are a couple, like that one story. Sure, that you there's have, a kid in the You have that story in there about the, that, that's, that, that crazy, yeah. you know, that incest, like, sex book that you guys oh, had? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, Like, completely insane, like, incest fiction, you know, that all your sisters and you read um next of kin yeah next of kin indeed uh and uh so yeah when that when that was about to come on i was like okay, right yeah. that's one thing that's if they were yeah that's right. if there are 10 year olds yeah. in the audience yeah. but this is a college and but again that was a, a situation where and then she said i would invite you back only if you allow me to pre-approve your material and Tony Kushner allowed me to pre, and he said afterwards that it was the best talk he ever gave. Now, that's just not true. He wouldn't Tony have allowed. Tony Kushner, yeah, yeah I don't he would think not so. have allowed that. I, I just didn't, so. and then I just thought, okay, you're crazy. And then she did that thing at the end where I appreciate your prompt response to this letter. I'm not fucking writing it. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to make any other observations on what Amos was saying? Oh, have you ever felt the urge to go like all experimental, like to have your sort of Brian Eno phase as a writer or whatever? Well, I notice it with other writers when I don't, like a lot of people like Murakami, right? Yeah. The Japanese writer. But I don't feel his characters aren't people to me. No, they're and, not. And so I don't feel any engagement with them where there's George Saunders can write in an experimental way but I never doubt that his his characters are always real to me and what's interesting to me is that whereas I may make a real person and I might take some bone and I might add some muscle to it and some blood George Saunders can take cardboard <laughs> and then add um, some hair left over <laughs> from when he shaved and a pipe cleaner and make someone just as real as I just made out of the flat. And I don't know how he does it. 100%, yeah. And I don't care how he does it. I'm amazed that anybody can do it. But if you don't make me care about the person, then I just not, I, you lost me. I'm Saunders not is a perfect example. Yeah, he's such a perfect example because his stuff is sometimes so 
out of this universe, but like but sem- cartoonish and relatable. I don't know. It yeah, it completely draws you in. Yeah. But like to sample like a girl diary, right? Right. Like th- that th- what, that, what that for the audience comes that's a crazy to, sci-fi story. Yeah, tell 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 about a about bit. you know the th- the thing to do is to have these girls who are refugees from another country and they have wires through their head and you have them in your front yard hanging in your front yard because that's what everybody has. But Right, it's like a bourgeois fashion yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> and so these people who can't really afford one get one to make their daughters happy. But it's about every parent who, whatever the thing is that the kids all have an Xbox or whatever, who can't really afford the Xbox, who gets the Xbox. Right. And, and you can relate to it. Right, even though it's this crazy thing about hanging girls through wires through their yeah, heads. Yeah, it goes back to that thing like write what you know. Like he's writing what he knows. He's writing what we all know, but it doesn't look like anything right. that you've ever seen before. It's just that he's writing in a different language, <laughs> and yeah. we didn't know we could speak that language, but we can. Yeah, which somehow actually makes it easier to like connect with the thing that you know that he's talking about than it, than if it was presented in a more, I don't know, conventional package. Because it pulls you enough out of your normal environment that you can kind of let it in mm-hmm. as opposed to having it wash over you. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it sneaks up on you in a way. Because yeah, yeah. he's, again, he's speaking a language you didn't un- knew that you understood. Yeah. But there's a, where there's other, there are other writers who he's been compared to who I just... I just don't like feel anything. Donald Barthelm or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Don, Donald Bartleme. I, ne- Bartleme, I, I would read his stuff in the New Yorker. I think that's how you say his name. Okay. I would read his stuff in the New Yorker and I just never felt anything. Right, and I would right, just right. think, I want a story. I mean, I learned so much by going to readings and listening to people and noticing when I stopped listening. And I would think, the character doesn't want anything. There's nothing at stake. So I don't care about them. Or... There's two characters. They don't have names. We don't know what they look like. They're just spouting gibberish at each other. I don't care. Or the person's talking about a dream. I really don't care about that. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't like hearing dreams. Or, are hard to listen to because they oh, have awful. There's they go no absolutely nowhere. Even if you're in them, like I don't even <laughs> want to hear. By the way, wait. I have to tell you. My son told me he had a dream on the basis of having listened to your story. The, the story about your OCD as a uh-huh. kid, he told me that he dreamt that he had grown up and was in media in some way and had collaborated with someone and that they had, and that he was you, he was David Sedaris. Huh. And that person had paid him $10 for this collaboration. And then the OCD voice in his head had told him to steal $20 from this friend, which he did, and then was totally mortified and guilty and felt terrible. <laughs> So you gave my son a nightmare. Thanks, David. I, I, my, my, my work today is complete. Oh, another thing. Like, th- there's an essay that I wrote called A Number of Things I've Been Depressed About Lately. Yes. And the first draft of that was like 10 things I've been depressed. And I thought, you can't do that. You get in front of an audience and you say 10 things I've been depressed about. One. People are like, fuck, I have to listen to nine more things I've been depressed about. And they're just going to count <laughs> because all anybody really wants to do is go home. And <laughs> if you right. lose sight of that, then you're, you're deceiving yourself. That's interesting. Or when people say, well, people will want to listen to this because it's from me. Like, nope, they don't want to hear it from anybody because it's boring. You tell a lot of your stories publicly, but you write, you write them all first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But no, you I think I learned it. You gauge it by instinct or like... <clears throat> 
I think I learned it from going to other shows. I mean, just right. from going and listening to other people. And it's a, just a really good thing to go and sit in the audience and say, this is what it feels like when it starts 15 minutes late. This is what it feels like when somebody gets out there and they don't look and they're like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do tonight. Do you want me to do this or this? And you're thinking, I just spent $50 on a ticket and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's just good to pay attention and then pay attention to how you feel and then realize, okay, that's how people in my audience are feeling. That said, I mean, did you as a performer ever have terrible performances that where mm -hmm. it just all collapsed to hell? Yeah. I mean, I remember in Chicago when I was pretty young, I couldn't write unless I was drinking and I wanted to write a brand new thing. So I was like really drunk by the time I got on stage and I, and then I read my thing and then I sat down and I fell right asleep. And I was asleep in the audience while other people were going on. Oh, no. That was like not pretty. That was... That was <laughs> that, that, um, that'll, that'll, speaking of Martin Amos's point about losing the audience's goodwill, that'll, that'll spend your capital real quick. You just performed for them, demanded their attention, and now you're asleep. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, luckily I made a lot of those mistakes early on before yeah. the ticket cost more than $4. Right. You know, I have bad nights now, but, you know, sometimes I'll think, oh, that was Q&A sucked. But no, the Q&A questions didn't suck. They're always the same questions. I sucked in giving the answers. Like I wasn't having fun with them or I wasn't quick enough on my feet to turn it around or to... And that, that just depends on the vagaries of energy, right? Yeah, like yeah, how yeah. you're doing on the tour, whether you're tired well, that day, whatever, right? I, mean, I was in a bookstore a couple of years ago and I didn't realize the bookstore manager had a microphone. So I'm doing the Q&A and then she says, okay, if anybody else, that's it for the questions. Uh, it's time to start the book signing. And I looked over at her and I thought, I will never forgive you for what you just did. Because you can't end on any question. Do you know what I mean? Like right. sometimes you don't want to end on a question that's like, has a negative answer. It has to be the right question for you. To, and trust me, I've been doing this long enough. I'm not going to go on too long. I can read the room. And she just jumped yeah. in. I, I was mortified. I was signing books one time. And then all of a sudden there's this bookstore employee next to me saying, okay, well, thank you very much for coming. And it's like... <laughs> Someone's telling me a story, but I ask them a question and they're answering. <laughs> right. and, but if, I, if that was me, I would be mortified if somebody hustled me off like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I say to them, I, I'll be here until four o'clock in the morning if that's how long it takes. But don't do that to me. We're getting, because I just don't actually want to ever interrupt anything that you're saying. We're running toward the end of the time, but okay. maybe what we can do is like, Real quick, watch the other video sure, and then micro sure. talk about it and sure, then end from there. This is called The Extraordinary Genitalia of Female Spotted Hyenas, and it is by Lucy Cook, who is a zoologist and an author. The spotted hyena is an extraordinary creature. They are the original chicks with dicks because they have extraordinary genitalia. The female's genitalia is a facsimile of the males. She has what is described in polite zoological circles as a pseudo-penis, which is actually an eight-inch clitoris. And she also has a fake scrotum. And 
It's it's uh, it's an unusual piece of equipment for a female because it's a sort of strange multitasking organ. It's the pseudo penis because the female hyena will actually copulate, urinate, and give birth through it. So giving birth is a bit like squeezing a melon out of a hosepipe. And one in, I think it's a, a large percentage of, of cubs um, suffocate on the way out. And, and a large amount of mum, first time mums die in childbirth. So you've got to think, hello evolution, what were you thinking when, when you evolved the, uh, the pseudo penis in the hyena? What can possibly, what, what possible reason can there be for this structure? And there are lots of theories as to why, um, but the, the, the likely, the, the most favoured theory by um, Kay Holkamp, who's the kind of Jane Goodall of spotted hyenas, an amazing scientist who's been studying them in the wild for years and years and years. When I asked her, she said that she thought that it was all to do with the war between the sexes. So hyenas are unusual, the females. Uh, they don't just have a pseudo penis and a fake scrotum, but they're also bigger than the males and they're more aggressive. Hyena society is a strict matriarchy with dominance passing down the female line. Uh, males are reduced to the very outskirts of society where they are forced to beg for acceptance, food and sex. Um, so the females are really running the show and they're extremely aggressive. Now, if a male wants to mate with a female, it's almost impossible for him to do that without her cooperation because it's it's kind of like trying to have sex with a sock <laughs> because he's got to try and insert his erect actual penis into her half foot floppy pseudo penis. I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not for the faint hearted. You can't really do it unless the female is on your side. Now, Within mammals, amongst mammals, rape is not uncommon. Dolphins, everybody loves them, look like they're smiling. They're not averse to boffing each other's blowholes or actually, uh, you know, th there's actually, you know, a fair amount of uh, non-consensual sex, shall we say, that happens amongst dolphins. Um, and, you know, but, but for, the, for the female hyena, there's absolutely no way that the male can force himself on her because she has to be completely compliant in order for him to be able to mate with her. So the idea that uh, Harvey Weinstein was described as a hyena when these, this, is a, this is an animal that is a strict matriarchy, uh, an aggressive female with a built-in anti-rape device um, is, 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 is about the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. Go, what are we gonna talk about? The floppy pseudo penis. <laughs> now I finally have a name. I finally have a name for what I've got between my legs. It's a floppy pseudo penis. Um, yeah. Somebody told me this the other day. A guy walks into Barnes and Noble and says, "Do you have that book of about really tiny penises?" And the clerk says, "I'm afraid it's not in yet." That's the one. <laughs> but hyenas. Uh, I don't know if you ever read the Book of Deadly Animals by Gordon Grice. It's such no. a good book. And a lot of the animals in there are like dogs. And things you didn't think of were that dangerous. But there's an article on there about hyenas. And uh, it's hard for me to think of 
what I would rather not be in a room with than a hyena. They are extremely deadly? Their jaws are so powerful. Okay. I thought they mostly ate carrion. My boyfriend Hugh grew up in Africa. Oh, okay. And there was a guy who would feed them rotten meat from his mouth. He would put it in his mouth and he would bend over and the hyenas would eat it out of his mouth. And that was safe? I know it. I mean, everything about that sounds horrible. Right. Everything about that. Putting the rotten meat in your mouth. That's gross. Because I heard once about this woman who, oh, it's in the book, Book of Deadly Animals. This woman, baby leopard seal, and she sees it and she's standing over it like, look at how cute you are. It jumps up. It bites her nose off. Off. And yet you have, and maybe we can end on this note, there is a fox that has adopted you in England. Is this true? Yes, there was a fox named it, oh, no more. Carol. Yeah. And uh, she disappeared. Somebody paid somebody to shoot her. Oh, God. Yeah. And so when I think about that story now, this fox showed up in my life one day. I should have thrown a rock at her because there's a reason wild animals need to be afraid of people, they need to run when they see us. Right. It became if, sort of tamed, and then yeah. somebody, yep. it got too close to. To the wrong Who freaked person. out? Yep, freaked out about it. But your relationship with the fox was not was very sweet. Actually. It was nothing feels better than wild than nature. A wild animal liking you, you feel so special. You know, there's a a I, bird I in our that. yard in London, yeah. and he comes into our house, and he comes into the house, and people can't believe what they're seeing. He doesn't fly through the house. He comes into the kitchen, jumps on a chair rail, and says to my boyfriend Hugh, "What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing?" <laughs> What are you doing? And we'll hang out with you. And then goes back out. You never need to force her. She doesn't fly. She doesn't try to fly up to the ceiling and get caught. She doesn't fly to the rest of the house. Just come to the kitchen. That's so amazing. Hughes, Robin. And then he has one in the country, too, who gets up on his the handle of his shovel. Right. You know, waiting for him to unearth some worms that he can eat. But uh, just hangs out with Hugh. And he's like a Robin whisperer. It feels like mercy itself when nature loves you like that. I mean, that is so nicely put. <laughs> it really is. You it know, just like, like you're, you know, you're innocent in a sense. Yeah, that's nicely put, though. It feels like mercy itself. Yep. David Sedaris, I have really enjoyed talking to you today. And David's new book is Calypso. It is wonderful. I was annoying my wife by laughing, cackling out loud as I was reading it. And there's lots of deep stuff in there, too. Thanks, David. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. And if you're still listening at this point, that means that you either really enjoyed this week's episode of Think Again or that you are at the gym or washing dishes and your hands are all sweaty or covered with dishwater and you haven't been able to press the pause button. Either way, if you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a rating and or a review on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And you can join us on Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. That's a private group on Facebook for more conversation. We'll be back next week with something completely different. And I hope you can be here too.